from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. I invite you to please pray with me. Father, there is, um, there is so much that you are saying to us in these words um, spoken by your son. Um, you are showing yourself to us. You are inviting us near to you. And so we pray as we reflect on what Jesus is saying here, um, that you would that you would truly give us the life of hearing these words and being changed by them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to um, consider one of the extraordinary teachings that we have here that actually we're going to be considering throughout this series. But before I do that, I, I first want to kind of revisit what I would say is the frustrating gap that we have been considering over these last few months. We, in our study of Deuteronomy, have seen that there is a way that is good. This, in some ways, is almost controversial in a time where it seems like everyone is figuring out their own truth and everyone is confused, and it seems like a good way is impossible, but there actually is a way where we can live how we're meant to, a way where we can work meaningfully, where we can be parents who have a household that, that is brought up in love, where, where we can love others well, where we can live in harmony with the way that we were meant to be, the, the way of righteousness. There is a way available to us, Deuteronomy, that is invited, that we are invited to. And yet, what Deuteronomy also makes, has made clear in our previous series 
is that that way is not in us. We're in a time, I think, um, where, and I don't remember ever a decade quite like this, where everyone seems to say this is not going well. Like the world is not going well. Society is not going well. And I think there's a tendency, I think, for us to kind of point and say, look at all everyone, how everyone's so confused and messed up. But if everyone is doing that, then it's not everyone else. It's, it's not a them problem. It's, it's an us problem. There's an old comic um, that said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And, and, that's, and that's right, I think. That when we look at the brokenness of society, we don't need to look any further than within our own selves and how there seems to be within us something lacking. Uh, an incapacity to love as we are meant to. It, it, at times, a lack of courage or a lack of humility or a lack of of wisdom. If you were with us last week, perhaps you even felt this more keenly as, as Jesus says, this is the way, and, and he shows it by, by washing people's feet. And he says, as I have loved you, love one another, and he goes to the cross. That is the way that is good. That is the way of, of kind of self-giving. If we all were like that, this world would be beautiful. And yet when we think about this idea of self-giving and the cost it potentially could have, there is something within us that says no. That's too threatening, that's too scary for us to give of ourselves in that way goes against something very natural to us. There is a frustrating gap. In fact, it's so great that really the only way forward, this is what we saw last week, needs to be some kind of surrender, some kind of letting go, some kind of dying to the project of self-sufficiency. There is no other way. And this week, I want to consider kind of what happens beyond that. There is an extraordinary power that is available to each of us, that has the capacity to utterly change us. There is a power available to us that comes from God that has the capacity to give us a joy that is resilient in the face of suffering, a peace that is deep, that can withstand all sorts of anxiety. There is a power that is available to us that is able to give us the very love that Jesus calls us to. And when Scripture speaks of this power, it is, it is so dynamic, so life-changing, that one of the words that Scripture uses is specifically of life. It calls this power life. So at the very end of the book of John, we're studying John right now, the very end it says, these things were written so that you might have life. And it's not talking just about making sure that you don't die at the very end, you go to heaven. It's saying, right now you're not alive, but you could be. And this power, this, this transformation that's being spoken of is, brings such a stark change that, that it's spoken of as a new birth. Remember we talked about this a little last week, that when Jesus is meeting this teacher, this Pharisee named Nicodemus, he says, you need to be born again. Or it could be even better translated, you need to be born from above. You need a new life, a new power in you changing you. And what Scripture teaches us is that that power is available to us, and it comes to us through the simplest and, and in some ways, most powerless choice that we can make, and that is simply by 
believing, by believing in Jesus. Perhaps the most famous thing that Jesus ever said points us to this, right? When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he said, this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You will have this life by believing. The very end of the Gospel of John, it says, these things were written so that you might believe, and that by believing in Jesus, you will have life. We have this power given to us that's available to us by believing in Jesus. And perhaps you notice that is what our passage, these words that Jesus speaks of in John 14 is about. The very beginning, after Jesus, he's talking to disciples who are worried because Jesus said he's about to leave, and he says, believe, believe in God, believe in me. And unless we think that, unless we think that's kind of, he, he forgets that idea, if you, if you look near the very end of the passage, he comes right back to it, where he talks in verse 10, 11, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe, this is the theme of this chapter, and I, I want us, as we're thinking about this idea of believing, to, to kind of come at it with three questions that I think come naturally when we're thinking about this statement. What is it that we are to believe? Why should we believe it? Like, what is the basis? And how can believing this make so much of a difference? What is it we are to believe? Why should we believe it? And how can it change us like it says it can? So first, when we're told that we're supposed to believe in Jesus, what does that mean? What are we to believe? And, and thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in doubt. He tells us exactly what he is saying. In fact, he says it twice, both in verse 10 and in verse 11. Notice what he says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Which means what? This, this strange language that some theologians talk about, mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son, Jesus is telling his disciples that there is an intimacy, there is a connection between him and God the Father that goes deeper, transcends anything the disciples possibly could have imagined. For all eternity, before Jesus entered this world, for all eternity, we are told that, that the Son and the Father we're in connection to each other. They have lived forever, and that connection is a connection of love. When Jesus says, the Father is, uh, that I am in the Father, he is saying, the Father loves me deeply. I am in his heart. And so Jesus will say, whatever belongs to the Father, he gives me. Whatever the Father knows, he tells me. Whatever is the Father's, he shares with me. Everything that is the Father's is mine. And then when Jesus says, and, and the Father is in me. He is, he is also speaking of his deep love for the Father. So he will say, I only say whatever the Father tells me to say. I only do whatever the Father gives me. There is this deep love that, that means there is this complete oneness between Jesus and the Father. And that oneness is so deep and so profound that that means that Jesus perfectly reveals who God is. This is one of the most extraordinary statements that we see in this passage. Jesus, in verse 7, says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. To know me is to know God. And in case 
See, Philip is confused because this is a stunning statement. So Jesus says this again. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This, this is what Jesus is saying. Here's what you need to believe. That I am in the Father and the Father is me. That if you know me, if you see me, you see God. This is so important and so extraordinary that for centuries after this book was written, after Jesus ascended, the church just spent all sorts of time trying to figure out how do we put this into words? What is going on here? And, and through a lot of that process of coming together, what we just confessed a little while ago in the Nicene Creed was the fruits of their labor. We believe in one God. There are not three gods. Jesus and the Father are not two gods. We believe in one God, but that one God somehow is both the Father, the Almighty God who made heaven and earth, and also the Son, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And how do we understand this relationship? Jesus is God from God, light from light, very God from very God. Whatever is true of God is true of him. He is begotten, not made. That is, he has always been. He was not created by God. He is of the very substance with the Father. He is God. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is what defines and divides us from all other beliefs. That to know Jesus is to know God. It's, it's, it's more than just believing that Jesus was a great man. Many believe that. It's more than believing even that he was perhaps a supernatural being who laid down his life and died for us. Others will believe that too, such as the Mormons. But we believe something more, that when we look at Jesus, we see God. If we want to know who God is, we need only look at Jesus because he is one with the Father. Jesus says, that is what you need to believe to be changed. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So how in the... Why? why this is such an extraordinary claim. Why, why should we believe this? How can we believe this? Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer to that as well. Verse 11, very simply, believe me. In other words... This is something I am saying about myself. Do you find me trustworthy? Last week, um, so our, our youth that meets bi-weekly, once a semester we have this kind of, I think it's beginning to be a new tradition, where, where once a semester there's kind of almost like this stump the pastor moment. I think it's being nicknamed uh, Ask the Reverend Doctor, where I'm supposed to come in and then we have a chance where just people can ask whatever questions they want and I, I'm, I fumble with some sort of answer. And, and last, last Sunday I was asked a question that I think probably many of us have thought about, especially if, like me, you've grown up in a Christian household. And that was, so there are billions of people who don't think what we think. There are billions of devout, sincere people who have vastly different understandings of who God is and what salvation is. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's quite, it's quite possible that if we grew up in one of those homes, we would believe completely differently from what we believe. So how in the world can we think that we're right? How can we be sure that we're right in this kind of background, which is, as I said, a great question. And honestly, I kind of fumbled the answer, so I, I feel like this is my chance to try again. Um, and I think part of what we should recognize is just this really simple observation that, 
maybe it's obvious but worth saying. The fact that there are lots of people believing in different things doesn't mean that everyone is wrong, right? So right now, from what I understand, there are all sorts of opinions about the origin of COVID. Like, was it because a bat bit someone? Was it because there was meat that was infected with a disease? Was it a lab escape? Was it a biological weapon? Is it caused by 5G? I mean, there are people who believe passionately in their theory of how COVID had its origin. And we know they're not all right. But even though there's so much disagreement, that doesn't mean they're all wrong. In fact, it's likely that one group at least is more right than everyone else. The fact that there's so much disagreement doesn't show that it's impossible to be right. It just shows that we're not very good at figuring out the answer. And the truth is the same when it comes to understanding whether we want to call it spiritual matters or matters of God or the supernatural, the fact that there are so many different opinions, what it shows us is that we just aren't very good at figuring this out, that there's something within us that, that makes it so that we just don't understand very well when it comes to knowing who God is. And so let me say, if, if the Christian claim were just that we are somehow more clever, um, more spiritual, that we have figured it out in a way that the rest of the world hasn't, we would be right to be deeply worried because there really isn't anything about us that is that way. But that's not the claim. The claim basically is we didn't know how to figure it out, but the teacher gave us the answer, and so we know. Because, because what we believe is, is not that we have capacity, but that God recognizes our lack of ability, and so he tells us the answer. And not only does he tell us, he becomes one of us, to reveal himself to us. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, to see me is to see God. I have come because otherwise you wouldn't know, but I have come so that you can know who God is. And the only question you need to ask is, do you find me trustworthy? Believe me, he says. C.S. Lewis uh, famously wrote about this idea. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up <clears throat> for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The question we ask is, do we believe him? Is he trustworthy? 
let's, let's, ask, let's consider for a moment that question. Let's assume for a moment that the gospel witnesses, what we have describing about Jesus, are reliable, which is a fair assumption considering that most of them were written within the lifetime. All of them were written within the lifetime where witnesses could have contradicted if they got it wrong. And many of the people who were responsible for the, the writing of the gospels were willing to hold to their testimony even when they were dying for it. So if we have a picture of Jesus in the Gospels, when we look, what do we see? Do we see someone who shows evidence of being out of his mind? Maybe having some extended manic episode with, with delusions that he, uh, of what he actually isn't. Is that what you see when you see Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount or giving these parables or or gently interacting with people like the Samaritan woman, or arguing with the Pharisees. Do we see someone who does not have touch of reality? Or on the other hand, do we see someone who maybe is in their right mind, but who is manipulating, who is perhaps a narcissist, who is willing to lie to do whatever he can to come out on top? Is that what we see when we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, or touching the leper, or going to the cross? I have yet to hear even close to a cogent defense to show that somehow that Jesus was either insane or some evil liar. And that means there is really only one other possibility, and that is that Jesus is trustworthy. And if he is trustworthy, we must hear him when he says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But notice Jesus doesn't only say that. He actually says a little bit more because he realizes how significant this claim is. Or else, he says, believe on account of the works which I do. Because he says, the Father is in me, and so whatever I say and whatever I do, we see the works of the Father. And so he says, look at my life, what I have said and what, I've ha what I have done. Consider all of the miracles that Jesus has accomplished giving sight to the blind, touching the leper and restoring them, casting out the demons and freeing the oppressed, feeding the hungry, bringing life to the dead. What do we see? We don't only see power, although we see that. What we see is the power of the creator making creation right again. Or consider his words, the wisdom of what he says. What we see is more than just words of man. We see wisdom that lies at the very heart of the universe, the wisdom of God himself. Jesus says, if you look at what I say and what I do, you will see God in that. Again, our, our belief, we, we don't believe that Christianity is true and the rest are wrong because we're somehow smarter. We know that's not what it is. We believe it because the Father has given us the answer. He has told us through Jesus, this is who I am. So this brings us to the final question. We, we've said that, that this belief that Jesus 
is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, that to know Jesus is to know God. It's not just a fact that's important, but it is the means by which we can experience something extraordinary, the power of God at work in us making us whole. And the question is how? How is it that this, something as simple as believing, can change everything? And the key to understand is when we're talking about believing here and when Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father, he's not saying if you believe this, you will get a fact right. He's talking about a knowledge that's bigger than that. He's saying that through me, through believing in me, you will have the relationship without which you cannot live. You will come to have a relationship with God. When we were uh, much younger living in Australia, Jennifer was pregnant with Timothy at the time, and there was this time where she had this strange craving for Whoppers. It was weird because Jennifer does not like Burger King, like, at all, but she's like, I need a Whopper now, which was not easy in Australia where they were far and few, few and far between. But we found one, and we found out later that the reason for this was she had an iron deficiency. She, she needed iron, and beef has iron. And, and so she was diagnosed with anemia. And if you know what anemia is, anemia is simply when your body, your, your blood, does not have the capacity to carry the oxygen to the body. And when that happens, your body gets weak, your body gets tired. I mean, she had a mild case, but it can get really severe. You can have real problems because your body cannot survive without oxygen. And what is true of our bodies is even truer when it comes to our very being, our very personhood. We cannot survive without knowing God. We have all sorts of strange symptoms that we don't even necessarily understand that shows that we're just hungering and thirsting and longing for it because we were never meant to be this way. I've been reading sometimes in psychology, there are some, some psychologists who speak about a father wound. And the, the idea is that when we are not able to establish the right kind of connection with our you know, our parental father when we were young, that can have all sorts of consequences for the rest of the life. We, we can have issues related to our own self-esteem, relations to the, the ability to love. All sorts of things can happen because of that. If that's the case, and I think there's some truth to that, what do we think happens to us if we were meant to know our Creator from infancy? If we were meant to know from the very beginning that we are loved? that we are secure, that we have a purpose where we are meant to live for Him and He takes pleasure in us. What do you think happens to us if that is missing from the time we are born? You and I are not meant to be as anxious as we are. We were not designed to experience that ache of confusion, wondering what we are for and what we're supposed to do with ourselves. We are not meant to find it so difficult at times to give ourselves in love. There is a brokenness to us. And if we want to know what we were meant to look like, what it would have looked like if we had had this relationship with the Father that we are meant for from the very beginning, we only need to look at Jesus. For all eternity, he has known the Father's love, the Father is in him, and he is in the Father, and he is someone that we see giving of himself in love with, with peace and with joy. That's what we're meant for, and Jesus says, I have come to give it to you. When you believe in me, you will come to know the Father, and I will bring you back to him. 
Do you notice when, when he's trying to, to help his disciples who are worried about him leaving, what does he say? He says, in my father's house there are many rooms and, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And, and just a little bit of reflection makes it clear. He's obviously speaking metaphorically. It's not that God has some major mansion that he's hanging out in and that Jesus needs to go and kind of, you know, make the bed and clean the bathroom for. He, he's speaking of relationship. He's saying, I am going because I want you to have a home with God the Father. I'm going so that once again you will know that He is your Father. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead so that whatever stands in the way of the relationship will be removed and God will once again be your home and you will know Him as your God. I am the way, He says. If you want to know how to come to the Father, you come through me. I am the one who will connect you to the Father. I am the truth. If you want to know the Father, you need only know me. And I am the life. If you come to know God through me and in me, you will experience the life you were always meant to experience. Here is something I would dare not say unless I was convinced that we see it clearly again and again throughout this passage from 13 through 17. Jesus intends for us to experience the very same kind of relationship he has had with the Father. That very intimacy the Son has known with the Father for all eternity, he wants to bring us in. The very joy that he has, being one with the Father, knowing he is loved by the Father, he wants to fill us with that same joy. The very peace and certainty he has in knowing all things are right in the Father, he wants us to experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. The very love that he has because he knows he is loved, he is able to love others, he wants to fill us with so that we can love. He wants to give us life. And if you have believed in Jesus, that is already what is going on inside of you. It, it might not feel like that, especially if we're spiritual infants or spiritual toddlers or even in our awkward spiritual adolescence, which probably describes most of us in one way or another. But let me tell you, there is a power that is at work in you right now. And the more that you become convinced of the Father's love for you, the more that you come to know Him through Jesus, the more you will find this new capacity for love and for joy and for peace. We can be hopeful even as we feel that gap, knowing that that gap has been surmounted and that we have a power at work in us that comes from God. And if that doesn't describe you, if you are someone who hasn't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to understand that the whole point of this whole book, John, is a, an extended invitation. These things, he says at the end, were written so that you might believe and have life. You are being invited to life. Wherever we are at in our journey, wherever we are in that story, we have an opportunity now to continue to kind of lean into this reality, to, to surrender our self-sufficiency and confession, to name where we have failed, 
and to hear the promises again, both through the word and then through the Lord's table, so that our faith might be strengthened and in our faith of Jesus we might have life. And so I'd like to invite us right now to spend a couple minutes in silent confession, just naming honestly who we are before God, acknowledging where we've failed, and being ready to hear the good news of the gospel beyond that. So would you please join with me in a time of silent prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.